Well, welcome back to the third conversation that Connor and I are having. We we are now we're now in part three, the the trilogy. This would be let's see, what Star Wars equivalent would this be? Revenge of the Sith. Or are we in the original trilogy, or are we in the new series that nobody likes? We're definitely <laughs> we're definitely in the prequels. The prequels are the best. I hold that in popular opinion that the prequels are the best. So you know, whichever one that is. I've only ever seen episode one out of the prequels. I never I never seen two and three. Oh, you're missing out, man. Was, Maybe I just tried. I had some very good memories of episode one. I remember think being confused why everybody hated Jar Jar Binks. The guy was hilarious. Yeah, hilarious. He actually is a Sith Lord. Jar Jar Binks is a Sith Lord. Yeah, he he uh, when he goes into the Supreme. Well, you probably haven't seen this part since you haven't seen the other movies. But when he goes stands in front of the Galactic Council, he does kind of one of these. And there's a fan theory that uh, it is his Jedi mind trick that causes Emperor Palpatine to to race to Supreme Chancellor. And then the Empire grows out of that. So it's all Jar Jar Binks's fault. But that is not what we're talking about today. Today, that theory's out there. But anyway, yeah. It, oh, it's a great one. Uh, today, our conversation, building off of conversation two. Conversation two was about what is salvation. We talked about all the different facets and sort of angles of what salvation looks like from the scriptures. And today, what we're talking about is how does that salvation come to us? How are we saved? By which mode is it delivered? What must we do? questions Mm -hmm. pertaining to salvation and how we are saved. So Connor, I'll let you start. I'll let you define kind of uh, what you hear when those questions are asked and you can give your answer and then we'll go back and forth. Yeah, definitely. I think that there are two really big, important questions here is how is salvation given on Christ's end? How did the atonement work? And how is salvation received by us? And I think that, I mean, like we said in the last episode, there are a lot of different definitions of salvation. I'll mostly be talking about salvation from sin and its consequences, since that is kind of the default Latter-day Saint definition of saved, even though we do use other ones. I imagine you'd mostly be talking about that first definition, where is that covenant relationship? Uh, no, I will I will go with you on the on the... Uh, deliverance from sin and its consequences, which naturally goes to a restored covenant relationship. But first and foremost, it's the uh, um, forgiveness of sins. Okay. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. So I do want to say that the church doesn't have an official answer for how the atonement works. We don't claim to understand everything about how it works. We, however, we do have kind of an interesting perspective kind of a different way of framing the issue of salvation that I don't see with a lot of other Christian denominations it has to do with this one passage in the book of Mormon, actually a couple of different passages, but it we see it as a conflict between God's great God's mercy and God's justice. We say that God is always perfectly just and always perfectly merciful. And I think that's something that most Christians could agree on, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, he isn't just merciful at one time and then just um, just at another time. He's always both. The issue, though, is you get into some situations where that causes a contradiction, where someone 
let's think, let's say someone commits a crime and they are begging for forgiveness. The merciful thing to do would be to grant that forgiveness. The just thing to do would be to go forward with whatever their punishment is. And obviously that's something that's pretty important when it comes to discussions of salvation. To us, the atonement is a way to reconcile both of those seemingly conflicting uh, godly attributes. We, through the atonement, God is merciful because we have a mediator through Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ's sacrifice, we're able to both be under the law of mercy and be under the law of justice at the same time. And how exactly that works, we don't have an official answer for it. We have what I, we do have and what I like are a lot of stories and metaphors that can kind of help you come to a better understanding. Even though we don't have a hard and fast answer, like this is how Christ's suffering translated to salvation for us. Okay. Uh, yeah, sweet. I, I, I think I'm going to pick out a few things there real quick and uh, agree with you. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes, God is merciful and he's justice. And so there seems to be some uh, tension there when it comes to sinful people. Um, I will. Uh, as probably you'll see in my answer, well, maybe not, but just to show my hand a little bit here at the beginning, um, I don't believe that God shows mercy to everyone in the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, there are, he shows different levels of mercy or maybe even different mercies uh, to different people. So I'm thinking of uh, a Romans 9 sort of passage when God says he has mercy on whom he will have mercy and he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. But I'm also going to agree with your language of salvation. Uh, we'll talk about it in, in this most kind of fundamental way is the forgiveness of sins. We are sinful and we need cleansing and we are cleansed through the atonement of Jesus Christ as, his, as a mediator for us. And so to, to answer that question, I would, I would normally start the answer of saying the biggest problem that mankind has is God's justice, or better put, maybe our unrighteousness. And I think of Job in the book of Job, and he asks this question. He asks, how can, how can man be in the right with God? And, and our problem is that we are sinful uh, and that we deserve justice. And the justice that we deserve is the wrath of God, punishment for our sin. and to avoid that punishment, one, it needs to be atoned for. And two, to enter into heaven, we need to be righteous. Uh, like Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, surely I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. And well, oh man, that's a lot of righteousness. I mean, the scribes and the Pharisees are the righteous ones, at least supposedly. And so that yeah, means supposedly. I have to be, supposedly. And so that means I have to be pretty righteous. And, uh, and so for, for how the atonement works, uh, I would want to point towards, uh, I think, I think you would agree with me on this, the old Testament sacrificial system. Okay. So 
when, when the people in the Old Testament come to realize their sin, they are supposed to offer an animal as a substitute. And, and the animal is killed in place of the person. And uh, a very interesting passage, you know, people hate, uh, people hate the book of Leviticus most of the time. Most of the time, Bible reading, Bible reading falls apart when, when you get to the book of, book of Leviticus. <laughs> All these people have like one year Bible reading plans. And they get to like February or whatever it is, and they get to Leviticus, and it all just collapses. But I mean, that's what I, most New Year's resolutions collapse anyway. So Leviticus is called. Maybe it's just coincidence. Correlation does not equal causation. Uh, so in in Leviticus, I think there's an incredibly important line for exactly how the atonement works in this sort of substitutionary way, and that's Leviticus seventeen eleven. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life, which means you sin. So you, so in some way you forfeit your life, you, you, are, you are deserving of a death penalty, and you substitute the animal's blood for your blood. And we learn in the book of Hebrews that, you know, Animals didn't really do the trick because they had to keep sacrificing the animal over and over again. So it never was a perfect atonement. But then Jesus Christ, who is the spotless lamb, comes and he enters in. He makes a sacrifice once for all. And then he sits down at the right hand of the father. And and so he atones for our sin, but also he gives us the righteousness that he had earned. So Jesus lived a perfect life. Uh, He never sinned. He was both passively and actively obedient. And when he dies on the cross, all of our sin and all of our guilt is imputed to him according to the Old Testament sacrificial system. So he bears the penalty that we are due. Second uh, Corinthians 5, 20, 21, he became sin uh, who knew no sin. And then the second part is so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so all of his perfection, his obedience, his law keeping, is then imputed to us. It's it's a, like a, it's the great exchange. It's the great switcheroo, where Jesus takes all of our sin and punishment, and we get all of His righteousness and um, inheritance and praise due for His due for His obedience. And so that's how I would probably answer how the atonement works and how we're saved. And all of that is appropriated to us, meaning all of that comes to us and is applied to us by the spirit's regeneration and by faith. Okay. Yeah. I would, so I would say this isn't an issue that Latter-day Saints are very dogmatic about. Mm -hmm. My personal answer is different than yours, but at the same time, I can see how your answer can harmonize with LDS doctrine, how a Latter-day Saints could could, totally answer the way that you just answered. There's one thing I wanted to talk about though. And this just in, just kind of an interesting thing that you reminded me about. There's a passage in the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. It talks about the purpose of the law of Moses and whether salvation comes through the law of Moses. A little bit of context here. There is a prophet named Abinadi, and he is preaching to a kind of panel of priests. Those priests, they've arrested him. They have, they're interrogating him. They're trying to get him to, you know, cross his words or something like that. They're trying to find some way that they can accuse him and get him executed. 
And eventually they do. But in the meantime, Abinadi is preaching this sermon. Earlier on in the sermon, he had asked them, uh, does salvation come through the law of Moses? And they said, yes, salvation comes through the law of Moses. Now it says, and now ye have said that salvation cometh by the law of Moses. I say unto you that it is expedient that you should keep the law of Moses as yet. I should probably mention this is uh, uh, Old Testament times. This is yeah. an Old Testament era prophet. But I say unto you that the time shall come when it shall no more be expedient to keep the law of Moses. And moreover, I say unto you that salvation doth not come by the law alone. And were it not for the atonement, which God himself shall make for the sins and iniquities of his people, that they must unavoidably perish, notwithstanding the law of Moses. One of the main issues of his sermon is that those priests, they denied the need for a Messiah. They thought that the law of Moses was the end all be all. And Abinadi is telling them, this is why you need a Messiah. And now I say unto you that there, it was expedient that there should be a law given to the children of Israel, yea, even a very strict law. For they were a stiff-necked people, quick to do iniquity, and slow to remember the Lord their God. Therefore, there was a law given them, yea, a law of performances and of ordinances, a law which they were to observe strictly from day to day and keep them in remembrance of God and their duty toward him. But behold, I say unto you that all these things were types of things to come. And now that they understand the law, yet I say unto you, nay, they did not understand the law. And this because of the hardness of their hearts. They understood not that there could not any man be saved except it were through the redemption of God. Anyway, so the one of the things that I take out of that is that God's method of salvation has never changed. I talked to some Christians who believe that when Christ came, we switched from one method of salvation, the law of Moses, to another method of salvation, the law of the New Testament. And I know that I know that, that wasn't what you were saying, but this is something that I run into pretty often. And what I like about this is that it's making clear that the law of Moses was there to remind us of what we were supposed to be doing, of what Israel had been failing to be, do because of their hard-heartedness, and to point them toward Christ first and foremost. All of those commandments, all those ordinances, they were symbols of what was supposed to happen, what, where their salvation was supposed to come in the end. Mm. Yeah, no, I think I think you hit on a very important point, and that is that people in the Old Testament were saved in the same way that we are saved in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we've got differences in the details, meaning I think we've got differences on. I it's I think we're really similar on mm -hmm. on the idea of the atonement of Jesus, that Jesus atones for sins as a mediator. Yeah, yeah. So Actually, I, might, I probably should share my personal views on it. And let me just make it clear. This is not the official position of the church. This okay. is the gospel according to Connor Smith here. Uh, <laughs> this is, a, this is a from a sermon that I heard a long time ago. I honestly don't remember where I heard it from. But it was telling a story about Abraham Lincoln. I looked up the story later. Apparently, it's not entirely true. Some of the details got exaggerated. But for the purposes of this, I'll just assume that the story is true. Yeah, sure. Well, there was a boy who had entered into the Union Army in the middle of the Civil War. He had a couple of older brothers. All of them had died. He lied about his age to get into the military. And he was put on guard duty one day. He was set on guard duty and he fell asleep. 
And so the Confederates, what they did was they snuck past him while he was asleep. And I mean, he's asleep. They're not going to wake, kill him and wake him up and have him make noise. So they just snuck past him and they ended up slaughtering his entire company because he fell asleep and he let them get past. And he felt awful about it. And obviously since that happened, he was, he's going to get court-martialed. He's going to get executed. That's the law. And the kid, he believed, he believed that he deserved this. He knew he felt, I mean, these were his friends. He felt awful about what happened. He felt responsible for what happened. He knew that he deserved his punishment, but his mother, his mother didn't want to lose one more son. So she went to president Lincoln and she made her case president Obviously, the president, you know, he signs death warrants in the military. He has the power of pardon. And she went to him and she said something along the lines of, I know my son did. I know that under the law, he is guilty. I know that he deserves his punishment. But I've already lost four of them, my sons. I'm all alone in the world. This kid, this boy, he's, this is all I have left. I've already given up so much. So please, for my sake, could you spare him? And as the story goes, President Lincoln, he pardoned the boy and released him to go live with his mother. Now, I think that morality is a subject that's better understood intuitively rather than in a philosophy textbook. When I like the story because it gives an in, me an intuitive understanding of how what Christ's role is between in you know being the mediator between justice and mercy. Because in sparing the boy for the sake of his mother. That suffering adds a kind of moral weight to her. It gives her the moral authority to ask for something, I guess. It's, that's the best way I know how to explain it. And as a result, President Lincoln's decision to pardon him is both merciful toward the boy and just toward the mother. That's my personal understanding of how Christ's atonement is given to us. And it's how I intuitively understand how forgiveness works and how repentance works and how all, all of that works. Because think about it this way. If the boy did not feel guilty about what he had done, if he said, oh, yeah, I'm going to go do it again. I'm happy my company got slaughtered. Do you really think the intervention of the mother? would have had enough moral authority to still get that kid off if he hadn't regretted what he'd done, if he said, I'm going to go do it again. Again, this is where I think the intuitive, intuitive understanding of morality is better than trying to hash things out in exact philosophical axioms. Okay. And this kind of gives me the framework that I build my personal understanding of Christ's role in salvation. Okay. 
Uh, I I do not think that that is a good um, parallel to the okay. atonement of Jesus for a few reasons. So okay. first off, uh, first off, uh, just to define uh, maybe a term. So you said the mother had suffered greatly because she had lost already some sons. Yep. And that gave her this moral sort of weight, this, um, this moral authority in some way to ask for the pardon of her son, which you're saying is similar to Jesus's role of, of asking the father to, to forgive humans, correct? Yes. Yeah. And then, uh, and then when Abraham Lincoln or God, the father, uh, grants the pardon that is justice towards the mother. Um, I think, I think that is, um, odd and you, I, I think you, I think you, um, admit it yourself when you say that moral mor- morality is, is better understood intuitively, but I, I, at some, at some point in the conversation, morality has to become objective where we have rules that we look at and we say this is moral, this is not moral. But what's more important, I think, to point out in the story is that justice wasn't done to the, to the soldier. The, there was no penalty for the, the crime that he committed. Namely, he committed um, a, a terrible act in falling asleep and allowing his entire company to be murdered. And he should be punished for that. That is wrong for him to do. That's morally, objectively wrong. He failed. Uh, and Abraham Lincoln has failed uh, to dispense justice. Um, normally, when, when presidential pardons go out, they don't go out to people who are, this guy is stone cold convicted. Normally, it's, I, I the president, believe this person is wrongly uh, convicted. Um, and so I think justice in that analogy is perverted because it never actually was done. So Abraham Lincoln, or I I would change it now to God, the father never actually punishes sin. He just grants kind of an obscure pardon to Jesus Christ. Well, to the people of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ has suffered, uh, in some sort of way. And so that is a God of, of a lot of mercy, but no punitive justice. He has not punished the lawbreaker. So um, I would I would just give an example of, of an earthly courtroom where if a judge let off a criminal uh, because he was simply sorry or because his mother intervened and said, hey, I've lost boys before. Please don't punish my gangster son. Uh, and the judge let that son off the hook, that a judge would be terrible at his job. He has not dispensed justice. And there would probably be a big hoo-ha. Probably people wouldn't want him to be a judge anymore. There'd probably be a movement to make him not a judge because he hasn't done justice. Like I said, I don't really know. I don't really know how to defend this. This is not something I'm dogmatic about. This is something I'm willing to have my mind changed about. All I can say is that to me, it makes an internal kind of sense. I will say that I did look it up. The story is partly true. There was no mother involved, but President Lincoln, he did pardon him for sleeping on guard duty. And so that that is that part is a true story. But 
when it comes to justice being done, I don't know. I think I can't really say. Like I said, I don't really know a good way of defending this rigorously. All I can say is I really like this metaphor because it gives a good reason for me why repentance is necessary in order to be forgiven. It gives an intuitive understanding of the relationship between justice and mercy. Mm. And it's, it's not perfect, obviously. And I acknowledge that there are definitely imperfections. I'm just saying that this is the closest thing I have found personally that seems to that seems to make sense both to me and seems to resonate with the scriptures that i read okay yeah because i because i think i'm happy to make i have i'm happy to have my mind changed on this subject Hmm. because i mean I'm, i'm still growing that was that conclusion is something that i've only personally reached maybe about six months to a year ago Mm. i my mind is probably going to change a couple more times before I come to any kind of final answer. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah, because I think I think the Bible portrays something as absolutely necessary when it comes to the atonement of Jesus. And that is that as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he is actually paying the penalty that individuals deserve. Meaning, my let's let's say, which this is not true, but let's say that the only sin I've ever committed was that I've lied a bunch. Obviously, I've committed many other sins, but let's simplify it and say I am a liar. I've told many lies. On the cross, on the Roman cross, when Jesus was atoning for sin, that is, he is taking the wrath of God, he is taking the penalty for my lying. So all the penalty that I deserved for my lying, God the Father is dispensing upon Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is taking it willingly because he loves me. And so in that sense, both justice is done. God, the father, God really has been able to punish sin, meaning my sin that is due punishment. He has been able to distribute the punishment for it. That is death. And he has also been merciful in that he has provided me a sacrificial lamb that can take away sin and has even more than that, given me righteousness and cleansed me by his spirit. Mm-hmm. And so, and so I think that is, is um, uh, an absolutely necessary idea uh, that the Bible puts forward. That would be something that I would, if, if I were to change my mind on that, I would no longer, I would leave Christianity. That is, I think the, one of the most fundamental bedrock, uh, ideas really of of both the the old and new testaments and um orthodox christianity is this substitutionary penal atonement meaning jesus christ is the substitution and takes the penalty that i deserved and it it is it is an explicit penalty it's not just some random kind of jesus christ paid for sin and it's kind of very ephemeral and kind of out there in the ether not sure what sin is but no, my sin had a penalty due to it, and Jesus Christ uh, paid for that penalty and for the penalty of many others. Uh, and that is a mystery, how Jesus Christ could, could drink the, the cup of God's wrath in, in, a, in the space of a few hours. But um, that, that is, is, is a 
tough thing to answer, but I think, I think that, um, yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense where you're coming from. I think that there is definitely an element of truth to that. I would agree that that is a consistent message through the Old and New Testaments and even through the Book of Mormon. There's a couple of passages that I could talk, talk to you about that would seem to support a substitutionary view of the atonement. I don't think that's the end of it. I think that there is definitely more to it. And that's kind of what that's kind of what we're getting at when we talk about the resolution between justice and mercy. At the same time, though, like I said, I'm still trying to make up my mo- my own mind about how exactly this works. This has been something I've been studying for a while, ever since I was, I mean, honestly, since I got home on my mission, uh, since before then, even. Hmm. This, is, this is something that I want to understand. This is something that I don't claim that I fully understand. I don't think I'll ever fully understand it. But it's something where my understanding is still growing. I would say that on an intuitive level, just leaving it at the whole substitutionary atonements, that doesn't quite seem to answer all of my questions. But those are more personal issues than Latter-day Saints as a whole. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, should we shift to how this comes to us? Like what is required of us or... Or, yeah, sure. or what's what's the mechanism? How would you sure. how would you answer that? How does salvation how is salvation appropriated to you? Yeah. So something that Latter-day Saints are often accused of is that we believe in a works-based gospel. Mm. And I would say no, that we don't. The okay. reason why is because we don't believe what we often get straw man is believing is that we believe we can earn our way to heaven. We don't. We believe that a certain level of righteousness is necessary in order to dwell in God's presence. We believe that when you die, you don't magically become more righteous than you were before. The same spirit that inhabits your body right now is the same spirit that's going to be in God's presence. Nothing is going to change. If you are having a problem with lying in this life, you're going to continue to have that problem into the next life. That's what repentance is for. That repentance is both to cleanse ourselves of sin and also to, you know, we receive that forgiveness. It has that uh, dual purpose there. And in order to be cleansed from the consequences of sin. A necessary part of that is that you need to turn away from that sin. For sure. So, so, okay. So I think touching on the first point that you made, where I think a lot of people where in the words that you just said, I think a lot of people misunderstand LDS doctrine. They think that we're a salvation by works kind of deal. I have, in my view, it seems to be uh, a lot of people are confused by the issue of of a three-tiered heaven. And I think what you're saying is you do not need works to get into heaven, but that heaven would be the telestial, right? So depending on how righteous you are, that's how close you can stand being to God. 
I guess that's, yeah. the, that's, the, that's the simplest way I can think of to explain it. We yeah. don't believe in a binary heaven or hell. We don't believe that people are either good or they are not. We think that there is obviously a spectrum of people and depending on how good they are and how bad they are. I think we kind of went over the three-tiered heaven. Uh, yeah, just, just briefly. But, yeah, the short version is that the celestial kingdom is for is in general for people who have accepted the gospel. The telestial the terrestrial kingdom is for mm. people who have lived overall decent lives, but they haven't accepted the gospel. And the ter- telestial kingdom at the very bottom, that's for people who haven't lived good lives and haven't accepted the gospel. That is the that's obviously an oversimplification. It's a little bit more yeah. complicated than that. But yeah, and yeah, that's kind of how that's kind of how that works. Yeah. And okay. it's not about what works you have done, it's what law you are able to stand living. Like we gotcha. all know that we can't all live. We can't all live, I don't know, Christ's law in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect, even as the Father which is in heaven is perfect. None of us are currently at that level. Certainly. But maybe there is a lower law below that, that you and I can live at the moment. Now, righteousness is to us intrinsically connected to happiness. People who live more righteous lives are going to be more happy. People who live wicked lives are not going to be happy. To us, more or less the definition of what right does to do stuff is because he wants us to be happy. And so those two ideas are intrinsically linked. Obviously, I want to be as righteous as I can because I want to live as happy of a life as I can. And that is more or less the motivation for repentance and for why we want to get up as high as we can, because we want to be able to live at a higher law where we'll be able to be happier as opposed to a lower level where existence will, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. We don't know what it's going to be like, honestly. Yeah. That's yeah. And so to clarify the issue, when you say that works are not required for salvation, what you're primarily referring to is the the telestial heaven, right? The terrestrial heaven. Sorry, not the telestial. The terrestrial. So by works, are you meaning things like baptism and? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we don't generally classify baptism and all the other covenants and ordinances as works. Okay. We, they are promises, and a promise is not a work. And the We have to make certain promises with God in order to progress beyond the certain points because we need his help. And in order to get that help, we need to make certain promises on our end. But that is not the same as works, if that makes sense. Um. Y- well, no, I don't think it makes sense, but I, I understand, uh, yes, what you're saying. 
you're saying that baptism and, and these other ordinances, they are, uh, they are sort of my part in a fulfillment of a promise that God has made towards me. And so they are not a work. That's, that's a fair summary, right? Yeah, kind of. I would say a work is going out and doing something. Baptism is promising something. Receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost is promising something. Um, I don't know. For example, the, endow- the endowment that we receive in the temple, those are us receive- making certain promises. And when we make and, re- make and fulfill those promises, we receive certain blessings in return that help us progress. Okay. Okay. Man, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, I think, really kind of tough ideas that sit into this. Because one thing that you said that uh, jumps out at me is that you don't, you don't become more righteous as soon as you die. It's not like, it's not like you die and then all of a sudden you're hit with the righteousness laser and now you're yeah. super righteous. Um, I... Yeah, oh, man, that is that's such a hard um, sentence because I agree. I agree with that. I do. I think that every Christian. So I think this will be a spot where we disagree. Um, some LDS members are more righteous than others. Is agreed. Fair. Okay. Yeah, agreed. Okay. Oh man, I think that. All Christians, uh, all Christians who have repented and believed in the gospel are equally righteous. And not only are they equally righteous, they are perfectly righteous. Which probably sounds quite strange to you. Honestly, yes. And there are a couple of verses in the Bible that I could quote. Um, Third John something or other says that those who are righteous do righteousness. Mm-hmm. Actually, let me see if I can find the verse. Um, Third John. Here we go. Uh, little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He is righteous. So read that one more time. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. So that's first yeah. three, seven. I agree with that. Hmm. I agree with that. But I don't think that teaches different different levels. So I think I think your interpretation of the verse is. Uh, he who does righteousness is righteous. He who does more righteousness is more righteous. He who does less righteousness is less righteous. Yes. Well, that's not necessarily my, my issue is more that you're disconnecting righteousness from anything about the person themselves. Okay. And anything that they are doing their personal level of, you know, morality and, whatnot that disconnect there that doesn't really make sense gotcha 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 okay maybe maybe i can explain it a little better okay 
So what I talked about earlier with this, with the great exchange idea where Jesus is on the cross and we are repentant and believing, he takes all of our sin and he gives us all of his righteousness. So all Christians are given the righteousness of God through the regeneration of the spirit and through the indwelling of the spirit. So Philippians 3, 9, this is where I'm pulling this idea from. It's sometimes called an alien righteousness because it's from outside of ourselves. Philippians 3, 9. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So we believe that Paul is saying here, when you trust in Jesus and when you abandon righteousness from the law, because no one can obey the law, no one can earn righteousness through law. So when you abandon the law of Moses and you turn to Jesus in faith, his righteousness, his, his perfect life. So that's why I said you can't actually get more righteous than that. His perfect life is credited to you and you are now in possession of his righteousness. Although you still remain not perfect. So, so I believe, to, to just make this very personal, I believe that I am in possession of the righteousness of, God, of, of Jesus Christ of faith. I believe that Jesus Christ's righteousness, his perfect law obedience is mine. And so when God the Father looks at me, he does not see my sin. That was atoned for by Jesus. Instead, he sees Jesus's righteousness. I am uh, in, in terms of, of clothing. I'm clothed with God's righteousness. But while I still live in this life, I am still affected by sin. So I will sin uh, and I will probably tell more lies in the future and I'll, I'll do other things that are, that are wrong, but I am still in possession of righteousness. Um, I am simultaneously justified, made righteous, and yet sinful. Okay, so two things. My, so first thing is my primary objection to... The idea of alien righteousness is asking the question, why is God doing what we're doing, what he's doing? And I think that the plan was to get to that in the next episode. Like what, what's God, mm. all this, something like okay. that? Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Yeah, I think we talked about that at one point. Anyway, so I'll leave that for next time. But my other objection so the question, so when you die, you don't become any more righteous. Mm -hmm. If you had a problem telling lies in the past, then you're going to have a problem telling lies in the future. My question is, what kind of place is heaven going to be if personal righteousness has nothing to do with... who is there and who isn't. It seems to me that heaven under those standards wouldn't be too much different than what we have here on earth. Mm. Maybe the scenery would be nicer, but scenery isn't going to be, it isn't what makes heaven heaven. To oh me, yeah, sure. Heaven heaven is that the, all the people there are the kind of people that you really want as your next door neighbors. 
the kind of people who are always willing to help, the people who are always willing to loan you a cup of sugar, the people who would bend over backwards to help you with anything just because you're a fellow person. That is what heaven is going to, that's what's going to make heaven so amazing. Not just the fact that God is there, but the fact that everybody there is godly in the way that they act, in the way that they treat each other, in the way that they love each other, the way that Christ commanded. And I think that an important follow-up question to what is, what is salvation, how is salvation given? It's what is the end result? The end result of a salvation that is completely disentangled and you know take it's completely uncoupled from any kind of personal growth and righteousness and morality it seems to me that the end goal wouldn't be that much better than what we have so the end result wouldn't be that much better than what we have here on earth already gotcha gotcha yeah to 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 re L would be the same way under this because you'd get the same kind of people who are in hell as you have in, here on earth. Same kind gotcha. of people that would be in heaven are here are here on earth. It doesn't well, really the scenery seem- would be much worse in hell. <laughs> obviously, obviously, scenery does have a lot to do with what makes which which. But I think the people are the more important thing. Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, so to, to make sure I understand what you're saying, you're saying that, well, I'm saying that all Christians are are perfectly righteous right now. Well, if all Christians are perfectly righteous, man, society isn't very great. We still got a lot of crummy people around. And so, so what's going to be the awesomeness of heaven? Um, so I, to make this very personal, to make it very specific, I think, I believe that I am in possession of, of Jesus's Christ righteousness, which means uh, I can't get any more righteous. He did it the best. He, he never sinned. Um, and so I am in possession of, of, of perfect righteousness, but I still believe that sort of within me, there is an old man that Paul talks about, kind of this idea of the flesh that we still fight against, where Paul says, I am the chief of sinners, even though here in Philippians 3, he says he's perfectly righteous and he has the righteousness of God. And Paul says, I do the things that I don't want to do. And it's this madness. And he's even telling us, to, to be more like Christ. He's telling us to put on righteousness and to take off unrighteousness. So Paul is, is in various moments in the scriptures, he's saying, ah, I am the chief of sinners. I'm doing things I don't want. At another point, he says, I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And at another point, he says, I need to put on more righteousness. I need to run the race. I need to fulfill my role. I need to do all these things to make sure that I might attain the resurrection from the dead. And, and the question is, how do all those fit? And I think it, I think they all, I don't think they're contradictory. I think they fit together pretty well. So when I die and I go to heaven, uh, I'll just assume that we are all in agreement of heaven. Uh, when we go to heaven, all of that junk that Paul was talking about will be removed from me. So the sinful desires of my flesh my, my, my evil that still remains in my body and in my soul, 
um, the, the, the still sinful thoughts that I have, those will be removed from me. Those will be perfectly cleansed from me. And what will remain is me and the per- perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that I uh, am in possession of now. And so I do not go to heaven with all of the, all of the sinful things that I still have today. When I die, uh, in some way, God ultimately cleanses me. He, he completely finishes the work so that I am, on the moment of faith and repentance, perfectly righteous. But through sanctification, I'm becoming more like Jesus Christ, and I'm becoming more righteous. And then when I die, uh, all of the evil is, is, is cleansed from me, and I am consummatedly righteous. But I am not more righteous than I was at the moment of my justification, which um, I think I think we naturally want to quantify righteousness, which which can be which can be a hard thing. I think that makes the whole conversation a little more complex when we try and quantify righteousness. Um, mm-hmm. But I believe heaven will be so that's, wonderful. Hmm? I was going to say that's kind of unnecessary to do, even for what we're talking yeah. about. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but heaven will be so wonderful because it will be all of these Christians there who have been perfectly righteous since their justification, but yet all of their sin is done away with. So, so, so they uh, no longer deal with this sort of old person that lives uh, with them or in them. Uh, they no longer have sinful desires. Everything is cleansed. The curse is reversed uh, and we live amongst God. Uh, he is our light and he walks with us um, and he talks with us and he tells me that I am his own to recall an older joke. And the tree of life is there for our healing. Uh, and um, the the unrighteous are cast into hell and everything good about them is removed. So I believe that I believe that people are very sinful but I, I don't believe that they're as sinful as they could be. So the baddest of the baddest who have lived on earth, they could have been worse. And the reason they're not worse is because God, in some sense, restrains them. I get this idea from Romans 1, where God gives people over to their sinful desires, meaning beforehand he was sort of keeping them back, but now he has given them over. and when he casts sinners into hell, they will continue to sin, which I think is a great point that you make. Uh, but now God has, has, has not restrained them at all. He has unrestrained them and they are left to their, uh, to their complete sin, um, which I think is a horrifying thought. Does that sort of answer maybe some of the, some of the question that you had? Yeah, I'd say so. That does answer the concern. However, there are some follow-up questions for example, I mean, first, first of all, I would like to go, if you could send me some of those scriptures afterwards, so I have a chance to read through oh, shoot. Yeah, man. those chapters that you mentioned, talk, think, talk about what the scriptural justification is anyway, but um, just on a little, just on a more, I guess, philosophical note, if God can snap his fingers and make people better than they are right now, more righteous, more, I mean, I guess not more right since we've been using that term a lot, um, more moral. If he can snap his fingers and make people more moral than they currently are. And he's willing to do that. 
Why doesn't he do that right now? Hmm. That is a great question. I have asked that question. Uh, why do I still struggle with the sinful habit? I know God can, I mean, God can make blind people see. I'm sure he can heal me from my sinful habit. Why doesn't he do that? I do not know. Um, I think the idea kind of conjures up the scripture. I forget where this is. I think it's in Romans where Paul talks about how he's got this thorn in the flesh, but he never actually says what the thorn in the flesh is. And so lots of people speculate about what the thorn in the flesh is. And he says that he might've had some kind of hunchback or, Oh, I've heard all sorts of of ideas or something like that. It might've been physical ailments or yeah. Who knows? Uh, And, and, uh, and, he says, I've pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away. And he answered that my grace is sufficient for you. I think that could be an answer to that question. Um, when I, when I continue to sin, uh, it, it, it teaches me further reliance on God's righteousness and his grace and salvation by faith apart from works. You know, we naturally get self-righteous. Uh, we naturally get um, pretty uppity about ourselves where I'm pretty awesome because I, I'm not as bad as that person. Um, maybe, maybe that's an answer. I don't, I don't think that's a super convincing answer, but, uh, it's, it's, would answer the question in a very similar way. There's a Mm. verse in the book of Mormon and I'm sharing a lot of verses from the book of Mormon because I hope that the Christian audience will, you know, learn a little bit from it. Yeah, that's good. Um, but since I'm, I'm assuming most of your audience is going to be already familiar with the Bible. No, there's a, you'd be surprised. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, but there's a verse in Ether 12:27. The context of this is that Moroni, the guy, so uh, Mormon, the guy who wrote the Book of Mormon, he died and left his son Moroni to finish it. And Moroni knows he's not a very good writer. He sucks at this. And he has, to make a long story short, seen a vision of the future. He knows that people are going to mock his writing. He's no, I mean, and that's happened, honestly. Hmm. He knows that he. This is his life's work. This is his literally his only reason to live. For, at this point in the Book of Mormon's narrative, just finishing this book, and he knows he's not going to do a very good job. So he goes to God and he asks, "What on what on earth am I doing? What can, what can I do about this? How please help me?" And the Lord gives Moroni a brief little sermon about why he gives people weakness. And verse 27 says, if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. And my grace is sufficient for all men, that if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. So that, like I said, I was saying would answer the question in a very similar way. The problem that I see is that when we're talking about God snapping his fingers and making people more moral. Why can't he do the same for those lessons that you're meant to be learning by having those weaknesses? Why, instead of giving you the weakness to teach you how to be more reliant on him, why can't he just snap his fingers and make you more reliant on him? And Latter-day Saints, for us, it's resolved because we strongly believe that free will is the number one law that God will never break. He's not going to ever, mm-hmm. he's not going to ever do anything like what you said, where he takes away 
all of our sins and temptations and makes us sinless in order to go to heaven. We don't believe that's ever going to happen because that would infringe upon free will. Essentially, it would be God saying either live the way I, that you want, that I want you to, but, and give up your choice essentially to sin or literally go to hell. Yeah. Well, you've, you've, uh, you've measured correctly my Calvinism, uh, (laughs) that, that I, that I think, uh, freedom of the will is, is how it's normally defined as, as, um, freedom of alternative choice, meaning I, I could choose otherwise. Uh, yeah, I totally, I totally think that concept is not true. Um, but I, I still believe, you know, I, I don't, I just don't call it free will. I still believe will. Uh, but man, that'd be a great conversation for someday. Um, so let me, can I ask you some questions? Because, uh, sure. because I think you said something that I think a lot of people think where they say, Mormonism is a religion of works. And you say, no, we're not a religion of works. We're a religion of faith. And then, then it just becomes a shouting match without much, you know, kind of quotations. And Mm -hmm. so, um, and so second Nephi 25, I've always had a hard time with that chapter. Yes. Um, Let me open that up really quick. Yeah. Particularly, I, I think it's confusing because earlier in the in the teens he says nephi says uh he talks about the coming crucifixion of the messiah yes yeah and i just lost it uh but he talks about he uses this kind of language about how we're justified by belief in him we're saved by belief in him um And I'm not finding that, but then later in, uh, in 23, he, he talks about how we labor diligently to persuade our children, uh, and also our brothers to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved. And then the big sticker for me is after all we can do Mm -hmm. where, well, okay. So that is very different from what I believe. So I think we are saved by grace in spite of the nothing that we can do. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, so sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I'll, 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 I'll leave that. I'll, I'll bring up another thing maybe later. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, talking about that verse you referred to earlier on, I, I think I know which one you're talking about. I don't remember the reference off the top of my head, but I'll keep looking for it while I listen. Yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't, I believe that yes, it is there. Uh, we'll just, but we resolve that verse in the same way that we resolve, uh, I think it's John 3 17, something like that, where okay. it talks, about, where it talks about, um, believe Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, believe in me and be saved. Uh, something, mm. something along those lines. And then also the sim- all the similar verses you find all throughout the Pauline epistles where the basic gist of it is you have to believe in order to be saved. For mm-hmm. us, the way we resolve that is the honest fact that not, not every prophet 
or I guess not every author of scripture, since you guys don't usually classify the apostles as prophets. Uh, uh, yeah, we would we we would say that they are prophets, but they are higher than prophets because they're apostles. Yeah. So for when a Latter Day Saint talks about prophets, it is anyone with the authority to author scripture if necessary. A prophet is anybody who can author scripture if necessary. Yes, it's anyone who's writing. So even though, for example, Andrew the Apostle didn't author any scripture, he would still be considered a prophet because he has equal authority as, you know, for other people who authored scripture. And so for Latter-day Saint purposes, that is what we mean when we say prophet, not to be confused with prophet as in president of the church which is the presiding authority. Uh, anyway, pro- moral of the story is people don't always mean what they say they mean. The definitions are hard. But going back to what I was saying before, hmm. often when somebody is saying um, believe and be saved or have faith and be saved or repent and be saved, they aren't talking about all the other things that you need to do, because if you just took it as you have to do this one thing in order to be saved, then you be you have a problem where a lot of different verses say a lot of different things in order that you have to do in order to be saved. And you would lead, run into contradictions if you interpret them literally in that way. Okay. So we see that verse as saying belief is a necessary step in salvation. I guess this. And obviously everything else follows. If you do believe, if you truly believe, then everything else is going to happen. But you can't just believe and be and have done with that and expect to be safe. That's how we see it. But going to the verse, uh, 2 Nephi 25, 23. For we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ, to be reconciled to God. For we know it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. And that phrase, after all we can do, is a very interesting one because it only ever appears, as far as I'm aware, in one other spot in the Book of Mormon. Hmm. And I'll turn there because I think that having that context and how that phrase is used elsewhere gives us a very good starting point to understand what nephi is saying here sure. anyway, I'll do it it is alma i want to say it's alma 27 let me see if i can find it let's see ah, no sorry it is alma chapter 24 The context of this is that a group of missionaries had come to the Lamanites, who at this time were a very wicked people, and they managed to convert the king of a small kingdom named Lamoni. And through a series of events that I won't get into, those people, pretty much all of his country, converted. And they ended up separating from the main body of Lamanites, becoming their own people. They called themselves the Anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Anyway, so previous to their conversion, they had been a very warlike, very murderous people. They enjoyed going and fighting and making war for for sport. Hmm. And after their conversion, they felt absolutely horrible about this. They, They were stung 
with the guilt of the murders that they had committed, is what it says. And the king, he is here giving a speech to the people about you know God, God's forgiveness and how his actually I'll, I'll just read it. I'll just read it. Let's see. So now these are the words which he said unto the people concerning the matter. I thank my God, my beloved people, that our great God has in goodness sent these our brethren unto us to preach unto us and convince us of the traditions of our wicked fathers. And behold, I thank my great God that he has given us a portion of his spirit to soften our hearts, that we have opened a correspondence with these our brethren, the Nephites. And behold, I also thank my God that by opening this correspondence, we have been convinced of our sins and of the many murders which we have committed. And uh, we, I also thank my God, yea, my great God, that he has granted unto us that we might repent of these things, that he hath forgiven us of these our many sins and murders which we have committed and taken away the guilt from our hearts through the mercies of his son. And now behold, my brethren, since it has been all we could do, that's, that's where it brings in that mm. phrase, since it has been all we could do as we were the most lost of all mankind to repent of all of our sins and the many murders which we have committed and to get God to take them away from our hearts. For it was all we could do to repent sufficiently before God that he would take away our stain. Now, I think that that verse right there gives a lot of good context for what exactly is meant by all we can do. All we can really do is choose God and repent of what we've done and, you know, choose from this point onward to obey him. Now, we aren't going to be perfect, but we can get better and better at it. And Mm -hmm. that's the point of repentance. So we can gradually become better. So we can become more Christ-like and not in just kind of an ethereal way, because that's honestly how I see the. Uh, alien righteousness it's just it's you say that you're right you have perfect righteousness but what do you have to show for it? how can you show me that you have perfect righteousness we're trying what we're trying to do is we're trying to that all we can do is that we can repent of our sins and rely on god for the rest because the covenants like baptism receiving the gift of the holy ghost uh, the, some of the things that we do in the temple, all of those things are just us do are us relying on God. It's us making a covenant essentially to repent and put our trust in him that he'll be able to handle anything else, any other mm. problems that we have. Okay. And then uh, just a follow-up question because so, so that passage in Alma, it seems like we're saved by grace uh, and all we can do is repent. Like that's like all we can muster is a sort of choosing God and a dependence and a need for God. And that's why he saves me by grace. That's kind of a good, is that a good summary of that? I'd say so. I say there is one more okay. thing because okay. the sermon doesn't end there. It isn't just about thanking God for all that he has done for them. It isn't just about, you know, pull it back up again. It isn't just about saying we've had this guilt taken out of us. He actually goes on in the very next verse, stopping from where, uh, going from where I left off. It says, now my beloved brethren, since God has taken away our stains and our swords have become bright, then let us stain our swords no more with the blood of our brethren. 
Behold, I say unto you, nay, let us retain our swords that they are not stained with the blood of our brethren. For perhaps if we stain, should stain our swords again, they can no more be washed bright through the blood of our son, blood of the son of our great God, which had shed for the, eh, which shall be shed for the atonement of our sins. What they're doing here is going, I'm, I'm not going to read the whole chapter here, but sure. what they do is they take their weapons all of them, and they dig a gigantic pit in the ground, and they throw the weapons in. And from then on, they make a covenant that that they would no longer fight, period. They would never they would never shed anyone else's blood ever again because they did not, they were afraid that if they were to sin again, then they might not be able to, if they were to go back to the way they were, they might not be able to again become how they are. Hmm. And says that, and this they did, it being in their view, a testimony to God and also to men that they would never use weapons again for the shedding of man's blood. And this they did, vouching and covenanting with God, that rather than shed the blood of their brethren, they would give up their own lives. And rather than take away from them a brother, rather than take away from a brother, they would give unto him. And rather than spend their days in idleness, that they would labor abundantly with their hands. And I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit emotional because later on in this story, what happens is they are attacked by some other Lamanites that don't take too kindly to their conversion. And hmm. instead of Instead of fighting back, they they kneel down and they die while praying. They the depth of their conversion was so great that they no longer feel fear death. They they were just so completely converted to Christ. They had perfect faith in his atonement. They had perfect faith in his ability to wipe them clean from their sins. That they no longer even wanted to fight back. They didn't, they just, they let themselves be honestly massacred. There was about a thousand of them killed in the attack. But as a result of that, the Lamanites who were attacking, they, they were completely stung by what they had done. They saw that they were just killing these innocent people. Hmm. And they stopped and they realized what horrible things they were doing. And as a result, those people repented. More than had, had been killed. And the people that were killed, they obviously, they're, they're doing... They're, they're doing all right. And as a result of that act, they were able to convert a lot more people through their example. That is what I personally aspire to. It's that just that complete and total faith, that total abandonment of sin that they demonstrate there. I think that is the example 
that all of us should be working towards. Yeah, hundred percent agree with that. So, so that whole story, it sounds like they were delivered through the conviction of their sin and, and they repented to God and they were saved by grace. And because of, because of their salvation by grace, they obviously wanted to obey as best as they could. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I fully agree with that. I'm totally, totally in agreement with that, that, uh, you know, once we're saved, we ought, we have, we have a moral obligation to, to live accordingly. Um, I mean, antinomianism, uh, which is just anti, uh, namas meaning against the law, this view that we're saved by grace. And so then we can do whatever we want is sometimes a pretty popular Christian idea, which I think groups like LDS and, and, uh, Roman Catholics push back against pretty hard. Uh, justly, I think they push back justly because, um, if you live however you want to, and you have no problem with sin, well, I'm going to doubt that you are saved because that's just not how a saved person behaves. But I think normally like the, the, you know, the pendulum swings and it swings the left side. and, And these people say we're saved by grace, so we can do whatever we want. And then the pendulum swings back in opposition against that. And groups say, no, we're not saved by grace. We're saved by grace and works. And so make sure you you behave accordingly. Otherwise you're not saved. And I think both of those are wrong. I think, I think the proper uh, description of salvation is that we are saved by grace and not by works. Meaning there is nothing that we have to do in order to be saved. We repent and believe and we're saved. And we, we don't have to be baptized. We don't have to take the Lord's Supper. We don't have to do charity, like the Catholics say. We don't have to evangelize. We don't have to do anything, but we ought to do all of those things. Um, and I think a true Christian will do those things, uh, but those are not required for salvation. Uh, we are saved by faith uh, alone. And the 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 most uncomfortable that I feel with Second Nephi is is not verse twenty three, but it's actually. Tw- verse 24. It's, it's his, it's his like continuation of his thought. And so it says we're saved by grace, by grace, we're saved after all we can do. And then he writes, and notwithstanding, we believe in Christ. We keep the law of Moses and look forward with the steadfastness unto Christ until the law shall be filled for, for this end, the law was given uh, wherefore the law had become death unto us, and we are made alive in Christ because of our faith, yet we keep the law because of the commandments. And and Paul, in the letter of Galatians, he tells the church of, of well, the church of Galatia, all the Galatian churches, that they have been bewitched by, by another gospel because they have returned to circumcision and, and the law of Moses. And he says, there is no justification in the law of Moses. We are saved by faith and grace alone, not by works. And if you actually go back to the law of Moses, what you are doing is you are canceling Christ and Jesus Christ will be of no benefit for you. You are damned and you are not saved, which I think is, boy, it's really uncomfortable that Paul does not mix uh, mince words there. He just like, he hates what the Galatians are doing. 
which is they're going back to circumcision and they're going back to all sorts of religious ordinances and and the law of Moses. And so I think I find this passage in Second Nephi really uncomfortable that Nephi is saying we still keep the law of Moses and we're saved by grace after all we can do because I think that directly contradicts Paul in the letter of Galatians. All I'll say is that I have a very hard time believing any interpretation of scripture that reduces God's commandments down to good suggestions. Mm. Mm. Um, so like, what do you do? So let me pull up an example. So in the old Testament, let's take circumcision. Uh, circumcision is obviously super important. It's a sign of the old covenant mm-hmm. and Moses is kind of slow to, to baptize his, his son. And so God's on his way to kill him. <laughs> and so it's like baptism is very important or sorry, circumcision is very important. Um, and then Paul in Galatians five, he writes, I, Paul verse two, Galatians five says, I, Paul say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. And so he's saying to these people, salvation was was absolutely necessary to be a part of the covenant of people of God in the Old Testament. But he says, now that Christ Jesus is here, he has he has removed um, the law. He has not removed morality. We are, we are still obligated to keep the moral law, but he has removed all the ordinances of the law of Moses. And if you turn back to the law of Moses, you are, you are severed from all mercy. And so like, what do you, what do you, what do you do with a moment like that? Well, so I would first ask the question. That's kind of why I brought up Mosiah earlier. Mm. Where it talks, it's a sermon from Abinadi about how, why the law of Moses was given in the first place. Question is, why is, well, why, what, why was the law of Moses given in the first place? Why is circumcision important? All of that is pointing toward the coming of Christ. And to continue to do those things after Christ had already come completely misses the point of why those things were instituted in the first place. Salvation, though, salvation did not change from one time, from 33, uh, like 40 BC to 40 AD. Salvation didn't change at all. So when I read Paul, when he talks about works, in context, I mean, obviously, this is a very, he, had, he wrote a lot of things, and, but most of the time, 90% of the time, when he said it, talking about works, he is talking about the works of the law, what law, the law of Moses. Mm-hmm. He isn't talking about obedience in general. Mm-hmm. But so, second, but Nephi says to obey the law of Moses. Yeah, because he was currently under the law of Moses. This was written in about 550 BC. Uh, he, right, but he, but isn't he writing about Jesus Christ? Isn't isn't the whole chapter yeah. about how we're saved through Christ Jesus? So uh, context before this, he had previously seen a vision of Christ's entire ministry. I believe that's yeah. first. I think it's the first couple of chapters, like chapters six through 13 or something like that, around that, around that area. 
So he's speaking of Christ in the past tense frequently in these couple of chapters because he has already seen and explained his vision of Christ's ministry in previous chapters before this. So that's why he's talking so openly about Christ. And his point here is the same that point that Mosiah was making is that the law of Moses will not be necessary forever, but we keep it now because God has commanded us to keep it now. Okay. Um, so to, to sort of harmonize maybe another one of your points, the we are, we're both in agreement that salvation has not changed. Salvation is the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. So if he says that we have to obey the law of Moses now to be saved, um, doesn't that imply that we have to obey the law of Moses now in the New Testament to be saved? No. It's, oh. So going back to those verses that you said that you're kind of uncomfortable with, going mm-hmm. is four, and notwithstanding, we believe in Christ, we keep the law of Moses and look forward with steadfastness unto Christ until the law shall be fulfilled. So we keep the law of Moses until the law shall be fulfilled, looking forward towards Christ's coming. Okay. For this end was the law given. This is the reason why the law was given. It's so it's because we're looking forward toward Christ. Wherefore the law hath become dead unto us, and we are made alive in Christ because of our faith, yet we keep the law because of the commandments. Right. So commandments change, salvation doesn't. Commandments in this case dictated that they obey the law of Moses, but mm-hmm. we are not under that, those same commandments. Command, God does not change, but commandments adapt as circumstances change. And okay. in those they were before Christ, they were living before Christ's coming, and the purpose of the commandments was to make them look forward toward Christ's coming. The purpose of a lot of the ordinances in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is to have us look back toward back to Christ's atonement. Things like, for example, baptism, or every week we take the sacrament. Um, yeah, all of those are meant to teach us to look backward at Christ's atonement, the same way that previous to Christ's atonement we were meant to look forward. Okay. Okay, here, let's do this. To end this episode, mm-hmm, I, we are- I'm... I, yeah, I'm going to try and summarize uh, a very basic LDS view, and you try and summarize my view. And so, what? Sorry, what I you on what specifically? We've covered a lot of things in this episode. on on how what how we are saved. Okay, how is salvation appropriated to us? So, I think that you have been saying during this episode that we are saved by faith and grace through Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are certain things that are required, like baptism and uh, a sealing in the temple and uh, other things that are required to reach salvation, maybe salvation being the highest form of heaven. Uh, those things are are required, but those are not works. And so when Paul says things like we're not saved by works, uh, he he doesn't mean that there aren't required actions that we have to take to also be saved. Yes. Okay. Yeah, let's echo the third article of faith. It's, we believe that through the atonement of Christ, all man can be saved by obedience to laws and ordinances of the gospel. We do believe okay. that obedience is necessary in order to be saved, at least in the definition of saved that we've been using. Okay. Okay. 
And so what I've been getting from you is that righteousness is a product of Christ's atonement and that because we have repented and shown that we actually do believe in him, that we have true faith in him, that his righteousness is given to us in a way that we don't fully understand. And that instead of looking at our personal righteousness, at the last day of judgment, God is going to look at Christ's righteousness. And as a result, we'll be saved. Yeah. And there, yeah, that's precisely what I believe. And then uh, just to add, there's nothing that you have to do. You will do many things, but there's nothing you have to do. Yeah. And I've already said it, but that is where I do have a problem with it. Anything that reduces God's commandments down to good suggestions, you're going to find that Latter-day Saints are going to push back against that. Hmm. But what's the big deal? They change, right? What? Didn't oh, you say that the commandments change? God doesn't change, but commandments change. Commandments change as circumstances change, but it doesn't mean that we don't need to follow them. Okay. Good reason okay. why God whichever gives whichever ones are the current commandments, we are required to obey those. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, hey, you know what? We have not talked past each other for the past hour and 20 minutes. Yeah, no, I feel like this has been a very productive conversation. That's pretty good. I mean, on the whole of conversations between Christians and LDS, this one has been incredibly successful. Yeah, I definitely say so. <laughs> Man, we're doing a great job. Doing a great job. Okay, um, great. Well, I hope everybody joins us for the fourth episode. I think we'll be talking about why has God done all this? Mm-hmm. Kind of the big question of why, which is very, very tough. I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens. but. Um, Absolutely. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I, I'm pretty sure that people will find this beneficial and I hope you guys join us for the next one. Look at you, the faithful listener who made it all the way to the end. Congratulations. I'm glad you enjoyed the podcast. I really enjoy making it. I really just want people to know what the Bible says. Every day people die And they go to hell because they don't know the gospel. And so I want to save those people and I want to encourage the saints. And if you want to help me with that, I could really use your help. Leave a rating, leave a comment. That stuff really helps the podcast with all the algorithms. And most importantly, share this podcast with anybody who might enjoy it. Your family, your coworkers, your friends, your enemies, your nemesis. It really doesn't matter. Share it with everybody. Let's do this together. I'll see you next episode.